Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Warby Parker. Hey, eyeglasses shouldn't be hard to buy, and Warby Parker is here to help. Head on over to warbyparker.com slash goodseats and order your free home try-on kit. Right now, five pairs of glasses to try on for five days with no obligation to buy. Try on the frames, impress your friends, pick the one or ones you like, and send them back. Warbyparker.com slash goodseats for your free home try-on kit. Here's our show. Glorified street ball. The red, white, and blue ball was viewed as a joke. The three-point shot was viewed as a gimmick. We were free and wild, and the times were free and wild. We was entertaining. I mean, that was my style of play, play wild ball. It's just a good feeling. You just open up and let your creative juices flow. Whatever was outrageous anywhere else, it was that much more outrageous in the ABA because, what the hell, we didn't have anything to lose. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Oh my goodness. Well, this is an episode we have been waiting for some time to get on the air and we are happy to drop it this week. Hello again, everyone. My name is Tim Hanlon and this is Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thank you tremendously for finding us out there in podcast land. We appreciate it. And uh, we uh, hope we delight you this week uh, in an extraordinarily special way. We uh, present to you this week an episode uh, that has been uh, many months in the making and uh, is frankly the beginning of what we hope is a multi-episode journey. And it is uh, uh, with great uh, delight and uh, distinction uh, that we're able to bring you finally a conversation uh, with perhaps one of the uh, very shortlisted group of men, uh, people, figures, uh, heroes, if you will, of our little genre of forgotten sports. His name is Dennis Murphy. And uh, if you don't know who he is, in in short order, uh, this is uh, perhaps the most uh, quintessential entrepreneur in uh, in modern professional sports uh, history. The man who either single-handedly or amongst a small group of men led efforts uh, to create many challenger leagues that uh, redefined uh, the shape and the scope uh, and the size and the future, if you will, of professional sports in this country. Dennis Murphy is uh, in the pantheon, the uh, Mount Rushmore of not only forgotten sports teams and leagues, but frankly, of professional sports generally. We uh, heard a little bit of uh, of some of the uh, shenanigans that he helped uh, usher in uh, in the late 1960s, early 1970s with the American Basketball Association, the uh, the, the challenger, if you will, the butt kicker to the NBA, the staid and relatively uh, colorless, in many respects, National Basketball Association. Uh, and that was just the first of many 
uh, professional uh, challenger league adventures for uh, this one, Dennis Murphy, uh, who we are uh, honored to have a conversation with. And by the way, we are dropping this episode around, uh, let's see, uh, the early part of September of this year. This will be, uh, as of September 4th, 2019, Dennis Murphy's 93rd birthday. Uh, God bless. You will hear, uh, though, uh, despite the uh, the age uh, in the voice, uh, amazing recollections and intrigue around uh, the formation of, uh, in our first conversation with Dennis, uh, the old American Basketball Association. And, and, and uh, during the course of this conversation, we'll also get into the beginnings of another league that he started right after that, the World Hockey Association, both leagues that we've talked about in previous episodes with previous guests, uh, but without which or without whom this conversation or Dennis Murphy, his efforts, uh, those two leagues and others such as Roller Hockey International and uh, elements of World Team Tennis and the World Football League, uh, all of those and others, uh, Dennis Murphy was either solely or largely responsible uh, for starting. And we cannot wait to get this conversation to you. Uh, our conversation uh, with the great Dennis Murphy coming up in just a few moments of any of the shows that we've delivered to you over these two and a half years. Uh, this one is uh, one for the uh, the ages, and we encourage you to uh, sit back and enjoy it in just a few moments. Of course, uh, we want to encourage you to celebrate this first of hopefully a few episodes with the great Dennis Murphy uh, by going to many of our sponsors this week, why don't you, uh, to celebrate, uh, in this case, uh, both the, uh, the wonders that were the ABA and the WHA. In no particular order, here are the places you need to go. How about OldSchoolShirts.com? Of course, you can use the promo code there, OldSchoolShirts.com, promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your great purchases. You're going to find tremendous shirts from both the World Hockey Association and the American Basketball Association. Check them out, OldSchoolShirts.com. Check out the colors, check out the logos. You'll even find some Roller Hockey International shirts there and use that promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. Once you're done there, hop on over to 503sports. That's 503-sports.com. Well, not only are you going to find T-shirts from the WHA and the American Basketball Association, but you will also find jerseys that have been handcrafted and recreated from both of those leagues. You're going to find some caps there too, some really smart looking caps, again, from both the leagues uh, of Dennis Murphy's uh, imagination, the WHA and the ABA. And of course, we've got a promo code for you there at 503sports. Again, 503-sports.com. Use the promo code SEATS and you're going to get 10% off all of your purchases there. Uh, so we thank our friends at 503 Sports. And once you're done there, you want to dial your web browser over to streakersports.com and hit their defunct uh, leagues section under their special collections tab. And in the defunct leagues, you will find, yes, the WHA and yes, the ABA, but you'll also find a bunch of other leagues that uh, Dennis was part of, including Roller Hockey International. They are all there for you at streakersports.com. And uh, not only will you find uh, uh, you'll find all the great shirts, it's probably the most comprehensive uh, of all the uh, the sites out there. And you're going to be able to find uh, wonderful stuff there and use a promo code there, too. And that's good seats, good seats. The uh, promo code at streakersports.com. Again, look at the uh, the defunct league section under ABA and the WHA. And you're going to find great stuff there at streakersports.com. So check them all out. Well, yeah, that's 503-sports.com promo code seats. OldSchoolShirts.com, promo code GOODSEATS, 
and streakersports.com, promo code GOODSEATS. Pick one, pick them all. They're all there for you. The American Basketball Association, the World Hockey Association, two of the many leagues that our guest this week, Dennis Murphy, had a distinct hand in founding. And here is our conversation with the great Dennis Murphy as we regale in all kinds of memories about both of those leagues and then some. Please sit back and enjoy. We focus on this show on on various teams and leagues that are are no longer with us for whatever reasons. And yeah, like for every, heaven's sakes, you guys had one of the greatest uh, hockey. Well, he's one of the greatest hockey players of all time, and Bobby Hall, and he was the one who helped make the World Hockey Association. Well, sure, but let's start actually with basketball because actually, you know what? I actually want to start even before the ABA. I I want to know how you got involved in being basically the largest and biggest challenger uh, guy to all kinds of professional sports in the first place. How did you even get to becoming starting this ABA thing? How did what was your background that got you interested in challenging the establishment of sports? Well, the establishment of sports. I was born in Shanghai, China. And before World War II, my family came back to the United States. My dad was with the Standard Oil Company. And so we came back to the United States. And we landed in West Los Angeles, where I went to high school. And then in high school, I went from high school to... uh, to the service, and when I got out of the military, uh, I decided, you know, to go to the University of Southern California, and that's where I met my wife and had a lot of wonderful years at at USC, and and at that time, I met a guy by the name of Jim Hardy, who was the quarterback on our football team, and uh, Jim... Jim became the Coliseum manager. Well, I went on and got called back in Korean War. And after the Korean War, I came back to California. And at that particular time, I bought a home in Buena Park, California, and became its mayor. And while I was mayor, I got to know the Knotts family and and uh, all a lot of nice people. And so the American Football League and was run by a guy by the name of Al Davis, who you, I'm sure, know very well. And Al Davis wanted to put a team in Orange County. So he called Jim Hardy and asked Jim if he knew anybody in Orange County that could do that. And so... Jim called me, and I said, yeah, I'll try. So what we did is we got the Knotts family involved, and we put a doubleheader football game, a high school game, and then a pro game at the Anaheim Stadium. And we got 47,000 people at the game, so we were all excited about the fact that we were going to maybe get a football team in Orange County. Unfortunately for us, the two leagues merged, 
Al Davis and 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 the National Football League got together and and so we were down the tubes and that. But the, the Dodge family said, "Hey, let's try to see if we can do something else." And so that's when we went and started the American Basketball Association. First thing I did was get a hold of Bill Sharman, who at one time was a very great, well, he's on the Hall of Fame at, at USC, and he he gave us a lot of a good good ideas. And one of the ideas he thought might be a good one that, that would help us was the three-point play. So between him and I, we got the votes to go for the three-point play, and so that's how the three-point play started. And so that was basically the way we started the ABA. So, so Dennis, why basketball then? After your football uh, experiences and in, in, in Orange County with a potential for a football team and, and, and all that, why why did you decide or why did you your your colleagues think about basketball being kind of the thing to pursue versus say football or some other sport? Well, they 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 you know they they asked me what I thought we should do go into basketball or hockey. And I didn't know very much about hockey at the time. So I said basketball was was the place to be and of course having Bill Sharman was certainly helpful, you know. So what do, what goes in then to the thinking about how to put a league together? Uh where do you start, right? So you've got the idea for basketball uh clearly Orange County a growing area that 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 could support probably a lot of different pro sports, right? So probably going to be part of it. How do you go about uh, hustling, I guess, or or putting together the, the the people and the money maybe to even take this from an idea to an actuality? Well, the money part was no problem because, of course, the Nats Ferry Farm people are very, very wealthy. And the other people that I put together with Nats Ferry Farm were, were equally as well wealthy. So we didn't have any problem with the money. But the big problem was, as you said, was to get the people. So what happened is they just said, well, let's let's start moving around and all the guys that were involved with us in the beginning gave us the list of names, and and so we started traveling a lot. Matter of fact, I was on an airplane, I would say, 90% of the time. And we we traveled a lot, met a lot of nice people that eventually joined, joined us in, in the basketball world. It seems to me that the NBA at the time was especially vulnerable to a challenge because it was probably the youngest of the major pro leagues. And I, it, it seems to me also that the, the the style of play was also a little, shall we say, conservative and, and classic. And maybe even financially, the NBA wasn't all that strong either. Was that Did that enter into your thinking too? Not, not really, because at that particular time, we thought the NBA was very, very strong, and they were. There were only six teams in the NBA at the time. And so they decided to, to stick with the six because they were all doing very well. And uh, 
because we came on the scene, they also became involved in expanding. So, because they wanted to try to stop us, Red Arback was the leader in the group, and Red was very intelligent and a very nice guy. And as time went on, we got to be friends, and Red was very active in, in promoting, of course, basketball. How did you uh, how did you convince people to become owners? Uh, as you know, uh, we had Pat Boone on uh, a number of months ago, uh, and he uh, specifically says that you were the reason that he uh, became convinced that uh, he should be an owner in this fledgling American Basketball Association. How did you get people like Pat Boone and others to cough up the money to join you in this uh, in this interesting uh, pursuit? Well, I just told him that I thought. It was time for basketball to expand from the six teams that the NBA had, and and I thought that this was the time to do it. And so they they joined me, and and we moved ahead. And I was so lucky to have such great owners like Pat Boone, and uh, it was just one of those things that just developed. You know, Pat was involved with with us and he owned the Oakland team in in our league and he was just a very 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 nice person and he played a lot of basketball himself over his over his high school and college time and and I I got to know him very very well and Pat is one of the nicest people you'd ever meet in this world how did you uh, go about besides the money and the owners uh, getting the players, uh, and, and George Mikan at that matter, right? George Mikan was your first commissioner, correct? That is absolutely correct. Well, my next-door neighbor, you know, it's funny how things work out in life. My next-door neighbor was a friend of George Mikan, and he suggested George Mikan. And so call, he called George, and George at that time was through his basketball, you know, days and as far as a player is concerned. So when I went back to see him, we got along just terrifically. And and uh, George was a wonderful guy and had a lot of interest, of course, in basketball because he was at that time Mr. Basketball. So he got involved and we, we, there, we went from there. But it was because of my neighbor, and that's, you know, that's one of those things that happen in life. You just never know what happens, you know. And it just so happened that he was one of my neighbors, and he knew George. So it was it was one of those things that happened that makes this world go around, I guess. <laughs> well, he certainly, he certainly gave some instant credibility to what you were putting together. I'm curious, did he, was he the one responsible or... or for that the league came to uh, to bring the three-point play, the three-point shot, the uh, the shot clock, the, uh, the the red, white, and blue ball. Maybe we get back to that in a second. But basketball-wise, how did you guys decide to, to come up with some of these more innovative rules? Well, I had two very good partners, and uh, Gary Davidson and, and Don Reagan. And they were both UCLA guys, and we used to have a lot of fun between UCLA and SC, and and we they became my partners. 
They were both lawyers, young lawyers from UCLA of all places. <laughs> we we had a lot of fun on that. But they they and us and and myself and were basically we we came up with the rules and all that stuff together with with uh, Bill Sharman. George actually just took over the administrative part of the league and did a wonderful, wonderful job. When you uh, finally uh, took the court, uh, when did you kind of know that you had something here? The cities, for example. Like, how did you go about choosing the cities? When I was doing my traveling, I I used to go all the first place I'd go to in any, any city that I didn't know anything about. I I'd go see the Chamber of Commerce and talk to the to the guys who ran the Chamber of Commerce and. And that's basically the way I I met some of the people that I did. And from that is the way we got the thing started. How much were you asking for a franchise to get things going? Do you remember how much was the cost of entry? You know what? That, that, $25,000. But $25,000 was a lot of money at that time, but... Can you imagine twenty five thousand when they're getting billions for the teams today? It's amazing. But so was that relatively easy? I mean, sure, twenty five thousand was was certainly a sum then. Uh, but was it relatively easy to get people to do that? I suspect it wasn't all that hard, uh, or or was it? Uh, because this was such a brand. Well, every, every city that I would go to, you know, I talked to the Chamber of Commerce guys and. And they would give me the guys who they thought, who they thought, not who I thought, but who they thought would would you know be involved with and be happy to be involved with a with a sports team for their city. So that's basically the way it worked out. And the three of us, Gary and Don and myself, we we kind of Gary was the front guy, Don was the lawyer. And I was the organizer. So basically, I did a lot of traveling at that time. Matter of fact, I didn't see my wife for about, oh, very few times during the during that period because I was doing a lot of traveling. And, and so basically, that's what it, what, what it came down to. Was there, was there a type of... Of of owner or prospective owner was there like a profile of a person like a, where they got their money or they were sports fans or uh, I'm just curious their business uh, dealings uh, real estate uh, was there any sort of profile or obvious candidate that you would typically look for to get somebody involved? No, basically I let to be honest I let the Chamber of Commerce guys give me the. The questions that you asked, like who's interested in sports and who had the money to, to support a team and all that stuff, I let let the Chamber of Commerce guys give me the information because they knew a lot more about those people than I I did certainly, and and on a whole they did a pretty darn good job. So when you're starting, when this is launching uh, in in the late '60s, so you've got a, a pretty good uh, geographical representation. Uh, a few cities with current NBA teams and a whole bunch without them. So give us an idea of those first couple of weeks when when the games actually started. 
when did you know that uh, that you were onto something and then that maybe this ABA thing was going to really resonate with fans and, and the players? Well, basically, as an organizer, I was mostly involved in getting out and, and meeting all these fine people. And, and the way it worked out was their interest in, in in basketball sometimes also showed some interest in, in some other sport as well. Or it, maybe they, in their cases, they thought more of some other sport rather than basketball. Like in, in Chicago's case, we had the Kaisers who were involved with a, with with our basketball, with our hockey teams. So it, it was through the contacts that we had in the basketball that led us to to decide after the basketball. I I be being the organizer after our organizer league. I mean, I was I was you know not doing very much at that time. So because of that fact. And I moved into these other sports and met people like the Kaisers and and uh, Bobby Hall and all these wonderful people that helped us start the World Hockey Association. Okay, I, I want to get to the WHA in a minute, but let me I just ask you a couple more quickies on, on the ABA, if you don't mind. Oh, go ahead. So tell me how you and 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 your colleagues got the players to play right because obviously without quality product on the court uh you're well, not Tim, going very far right at, at that time the nba had only six teams when we first started and they were paying the guys very very small uh, limited dollars and because we came on the scene they had to increase their prices and we were able to get some players to come over to with us because of the fact that they weren't getting very much money in the NBA at that time. And we helped, I think, improve the, the players' lot as far as money and stuff and for families and all that kind of things. So I think in that regard is the way we we're able to to make our strides with the players. So the, you saw this. This is the, to them. This was more of a an expansion of job opportunities for quality players that arguably could populate many more teams than the NBA had at the time. Oh, absolutely. That was that was basically the the reason. You know, because they were getting sometimes like four, like ten thousand or. You know, and they were playing before good crowds and everything. And the owners of the NBA at that that time were making a lot of money. And so, of course, when we came on the scene, it it you know it changed that to a, because they the players had another place to go. You know. Yeah. Well, the, it seemed like the NBA was at least in a in a slow manner was at least starting to expand a bit. Right. I think in 1968. They had gone up to actually to 14 teams by then, right? So Chicago, relatively new, Seattle, uh, the San Diego Rockets, Milwaukee, et cetera, right? So it's clear that they knew they were they needed to do something. But your arrival, right, indeed, not only it, it certainly became a threat to the NBA and it certainly expanded things rather quickly. So let, let me ask you this specific question. How much 
of the ABA model, at least in the early days, was also about stealing maybe some talent from the NBA to legitimize the ABA in the early days? Oh, that was very, very important to us. Getting George Mikan, of course, was was a very big attribute because he was very, very respected by everybody in, in, in basketball, not only as a player, but as a person. He made a big difference in, in the way we did things, and he was the one that helped us make the thing happen. Yeah, it seems that, um, well, okay, so like the Rick Barry situation, right, in Oakland, right, where, where, where Pat, you well, know. Rick Barry, Rick Barry was son of, uh, of a wonderful person, and because that person that he was, his father-in-law, was very active in, in, in sports in his community, and because of that, we were able to get Rick Berry to join our league when Pat Boone came in. He, he said, if Pat meets my financial re- requirements, he says, I'll make the move. So that's what happened. Yeah, and it, it's clear. I mean, you know, having him but being prevented to play him until the second season, right? That obviously. But but the fact that he was in process, at least, and then ultimately jumped, I mean, I think people like Barry and, and a handful of others, right, really, you know, almost gave the, the league overnight credibility, uh, even though not all the teams uh, would benefit, right? I, I I'm, Let me ask you this. Do, the, the, the financing of some of these expensive NBA players, say like a Rick Barry, right? Was that all on the shoulders of the individual owner or was there a bit of, I don't know, league collectivism? In, in the ABA, it was mostly on the owner. In some of the other leagues, as we started, uh, you're right. It was a, a collective deal, but in the ABA, it was mostly on the owner's. Interesting. And and so as the league got going then, um, what did you sort of see and feel that first sort of year or two? Clearly, there was some real uh, breakthrough and some real interest and fan interest. But clearly, there was also some shaky situations, too, right? Not so stable, uh, imbalance, that kind of stuff. What, what was your takeaway? Well, because, from the because first we, did, we did the thing in a short time and because we did it in some cases. Uh, Chamber of Commerce gave us the wrong guy, maybe in the city, you know. He got involved and just found out that there wasn't that much interest, and so he gave up his team. And so that's why we moved around a lot because a lot of the owners that we originally picked it were, were not, you know, they weren't the strong basketball fans and stuff. And they didn't want to keep on losing money because most of our teams lost money the first few years. But they, because of that reason, we had a lot of movement. A lot of teams moved from one city to another, you know. And that was that was a a, a point of contention. But we were able, and thank goodness we did. We survived it. So, would you say there was some naivete, or uh, 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 on some of the owners in terms? I mean, the franchise fee relatively low, 
but it almost feels like they might have been a little naive as to how much they needed to actually have in the team during the actual running of the team beyond that. Oh, absolutely. That's true. What you just said was was one of our biggest problems. How did you overcome that? Was it simply a, we need to find a new owner and hence a lot of the movement or? Well, we, we, had a, we just had, a, you know, the usual stuff that happens in all kinds of businesses. Some make it and some don't. And that's exactly what happened in basketball. All right, we'll be back with our conversation in just a moment. But first, a message from our friends at Warby Parker. Uh, I must tell you, friends, I cannot stand the process of getting eyeglasses. Uh, It's something that I've uh, luckily avoided for most of my adult life, but it's unavoidable now. And the process of going into a store, uh, meeting an optician, trying on frames, not knowing what the hell I'm doing, uh, and having no fashion sense whatsoever, all of the whole process, completely intimidating. And that's why I was attracted to Warby Parker in the first place. And uh, you uh, can uh, do what I did and avoid the hassles uh, and the embarrassment and just the sheer frustration of the process by trying on the frames at home. All you got to do is go to warbyparker.com slash good seats and order your free home try-on package. Uh, What do you get? You get five pair of glasses, five pairs of glasses, I think is the appropriate uh, English way to say that. And you get to try them on for five days uh, for free with no obligation. And you try them on for your friends, your family, your loved ones, whomever, and see if they like uh, what you think you might like. Uh, Obviously, you can you can see what kind of frames you like by going online first by uh, answering a few questions uh, and choosing some of the frames you think you might uh, enjoy the most. Uh, They come to you in a uh, prepaid and uh, uh, return shipping uh, situation there. You try them on and I will tell you, uh, it worked well for me. I tried on five pair at home with my uh, my wife and two daughters. The four first ones I tried on, they could not stand. I thought the first two or three actually looked pretty darn good, but they said no and they win. That fifth pair, however, oh boy, seems like I hit the, uh, the jackpot. And that's the one we went with and we sent it back in with my prescription and voila, about a week later, I got great sun uh, sunglasses. Well, that's next, but uh, I got eye, great eyeglasses from Warby Parker and the price, you can't beat it. There's no middleman, shall we say. Great frames, uh, great styles, and the process could not be easier. Again, for you, our listeners, you can do the same thing. Head over to warbyparker.com slash good seats. Take the quiz, get your five iframe glasses situation set up for you, have them set to you, and uh, enjoy the process as I did. Fear no more uh, the process of getting great prescription glasses. WarbyParker.com slash good seats. Try them out. You will love them as I have and still do. All right, let's go back to our conversation. Here it comes. How did you go about the arenas and how did your ownership go after the arenas? Because I got to think that some of these buildings were a little leery or a little worried about uh, what this was going to be or maybe the, the, whether it was going to survive at all. Whether it, was the arena thing a problem and or uh, relatively easy? Well, no, they, 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 most of the arenas made us put up a strong bond or or a, a strong amount of money for their seasons because, as you said, they didn't want to get involved and, and lose any money on it. So 
we had to come up with some bonds and we had to come up with some serious money in some cases. And how about uh, media and television? I mean, obviously not as important or or as obvious as today, right? But uh, the league really never had uh, anything of a national television contract or was media and, and, and broadcast rights was... And advertising was that kind of that was that was tough. It was tough, and there was a lot, a lot of questions in there, all in new cities and stuff about whether it, you know they it could succeed or not. But basically, we were lucky, and and because of the, the NBA did not expand when they should have, you know, before we were involved, they were happy to have a, a sports team in their community. So. In many cases, they they did they were very helpful to us, you know. All right, but let me ask you that. Maybe there's one last question about uh, the ABA. Can we talk about the ball, the actual red, white, and blue ball? Um, do you have a, a? Is there any story behind its origin? And I think it's also a business concept too, right? This ball. Well, that was that was an idea that the Harlem Globetrotters started a long time ago. One of our owners was Jerry Saperstein. And he, the Harlem Globetrotters used the red, white, blue ball. And and so when we started our league, we decided we'd just continue doing that. And that's why we got started on that. But unfortunately, our legal department, and I get Don Reagan a lot about this, did not patent the darn ball. And, and one of the companies grabbed a thing and went, went with it and made a lot of money on us. <laughs> but Don, well, you know, because he was a UCLA man, they were a little shaky at times, you know. <laughs> so, so so it's the fact that he went to UCLA instead of USC that was the cause of, uh, of, the, of the revenues not coming from the ABA ball, huh? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're giving me a business. Now. I don't want to get involved in that one. No, no, it, it was just one of those things that happened. And they they had so much to do that they didn't cover the area of of the pattern, deciding and 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 making sure that nobody would use the ball at that time on on a professional level. And unfortunately, you know, we just we just made a mistake. That's all. Well, do, do you remember how the the idea of a red, white, and blue ball came about in the first place? Do you remember whose idea it was? Well, yeah, it was Bill Sherman who came up with the idea. Was the idea to use that as a patentable and or revenue stream, or was it just an idea, just as a promotional one, to be different than the NBA? We wanted it to be different than the NBA. That was the basic reason. And we thought the red, white, and blue would ball would would attract a lot of people, and especially the women, you know. All right, last question about the ABA. So give us a sense of, of, of how you felt about it uh, after the first year or two. Uh, as you went around the league, you saw the excitement, you saw the maybe unevenness. Uh, did you think that you, you had uh, captured some lightning in a bottle here? Do you think you were making, do you think it was successful, and or what were you worried about? Well, it was, we were at that particular time, when I left, when I left the ABA, I just felt that we had good leadership, and Don Reagan and Gary Davidson and George Lincoln, and I felt the league was in pretty good shape administrative-wise, 
and our owners were very much involved. So we had a good group of people, and and from there it went on and on and and until the merger came about, you know. All right. Here's my last question about the ABA. When you started this and put help put it together and, and get people involved and going, did you ever envision that the ABA would last long enough and be successful enough to achieve a very significant and very valuable merger years later? Or or did you have no I mean, did you not really have any idea? Was that the I, to be honest with you? I didn't yeah. have any idea. And, and did any of the owners sort of see that as because clearly as we, we talk about various leagues and stuff that some owners sort of recognize or feel that by starting something in a challenger league, their ultimate goal financially is to get, you know, a, a franchise in the established league. Would you say that any of the owners kind of had that idea in concept or was it really a well, let's just challenge and and, and do basketball? No, I think it was a combination of the two. I think some people went one way and some people went another way, you know, depending on their financial structure. And like, you know, in in hockey, for instance, we started that in, in team tennis. We got Bob Kraft, for instance, interested. Look at Bob. Now he owns the New England Warriors. And, and I mean, I when you hear that, Los Angeles owner got $2 billion for his team. You, you think, wow, what, what's, what, what is Bob Kraft's team worth? It's, and, you know, you've got to think of the fact that it was worth $5 million. And he, it was like he took a chance and he made it, that's all. And some people like in business. Some make it, some don't, some some just hold on even, you know. And that's basically the same way it was with the ABA. All right, well, I want to segue into the WHA uh, in a second, but that's a good point. I, I want to bring that up. So because you have, I mean, you're, you know, one, you're probably one of the patron saints, right, of of challenger leagues and, and you know, all the leagues, and we're going to get to hopefully a bunch more uh, of your, your exploits, right? But... Do you ever feel I don't know wistful or you know do you do you ever sort of get a a, a a negative sort of feeling about sort of a lot of the things that you helped birth right indeed wound up becoming extremely uh, successful and financially uh, successful franchises and uh, uh, and valuable things did you you know how much did you get to participate in any of that and or if not. Uh, you know, do you ever relish some of not having some of that? To be honest with you, if I had been, it had Gary and I and Don had been smarter, what we would have done is what Jerry Saperstein suggested, and that is to take a piece of every team, and we never did. If we had done that, I mean, you know, money would would have never been a problem for any of us. But, you know, you never know, and and when we started all these leagues, you never know whether it catches on or doesn't catch on. Just like in business, you don't know if a certain business will make it and certain businesses don't make it. And, you know, it's just a gamble, and and the owners that we had were men of, of foresight, and, and what they did is they 
took a chance, and some made it, and some did not. All right, so you, you get this ABA thing up and running, and at what point do you kind of uh, start looking out outside of the ABA, and where does this idea of perhaps doing the same thing for the world of hockey come about? Well, it started, my, my thoughts became obvious when I, I was not an administrator at that time. I was, I was strictly uh, an organizer, and it is a big difference. An organizer is a guy that gets out and meets people and puts things together. That was kind of Gary Davidson's responsibility. So when the ABA, you know, got to the point where they couldn't continue to get more teams, you know, I I started to realize that that wasn't where I was going to be in my life. And so I had to think of something else. And so... When we first started the ABA, they said ABA or or hockey. So I decided to to get involved in hockey, and I was lucky to know a couple of guys in in Canada who really really helped me so much to get the thing going. Bill Hunter and Benny Haskins. They were uh, they were hockey people, and they helped me so much to get the thing started. And that's how that started. So this was you and Gary again, right? Uh, kind of putting the sort of foundation together for the WHA, or was this more your idea than his? Well, it was more my idea, but he helped me. And and three of us, you know, got to be very close. And we worked together on a lot of things. And they, at one time, we were involved with football, which Donald Trump, our president, uh, was involved with with the World Football League at, at one time, so it was just a matter of you know where 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 do you go, you know? And in our case, in my case, it was it was hockey. So that's how I, my emphasis was, and and because I knew Benny Haskins and Bill Hunter from Canada. They they used to go to Palm Springs a lot in California, and that's how I got to know them, and and that's how it got all started. So you you mentioned before how few teams there were in the NBA when you decided to sort of get this ABA thing going. The NHL, right, uh, was probably even more uh, slow and lagging to kind of catch on to uh, expansion, right? I think you were kind of alluding to it earlier. I mean, up until 1969, right, the NHL only had six teams, which is hard to believe. Um, they doubled in the great expansion to 12, in, I think, in 69. But you even thought that there was a lot more that could be done in the realm of hockey, I think. Especially in the United States, because hockey was at that time not, not big in the United States. I mean, they played it in some colleges and stuff, but it wasn't that big in the United States, and so that's basically one of the reasons why we moved our uh, our offices and everything. We originally started in San Diego, and so we, you know, that's how it got all all moving on in the right direction. Well, it also seems around. I mean, this seems like almost from the blueprint that you discovered or figured out with the ABA, right? There was. 
Uh, not uh, as many job opportunities, certainly in the United States, for for professional hockey. And the salaries were low, right? I think in 1972, when you guys launched in earnest, I think the average salary was only, I think it was like $25,000, right? Which is probably the lowest of all the major sports leagues in the United States. Absolutely. And and, and at that time, it was just unfortunate, but that that's the way it was. So when we came aboard... Because of Bobby Hull, Bobby Hull said, "You guys give me a million dollars collectively, and I'll I'll join you." And so we gave him his first. You know, I I, I don't know if people sometimes don't realize Bobby was one of the first guys to get a million dollars for playing any sport. He was the one who brought because of his popularity and because of the fact that he. But credibility, he he was the one that had we we got sixty one players in the first year from the NHL, and that was because of Bobby. So it seems almost that the WHA was even more bold in its uh, desire to steal talent from the NHL, uh, even more than the ABA did for the NBA. Yeah, you're. I think you're absolutely right. And that got people's attention for sure. And I'm sure the money. Right uh, with all the players, you know the allure of that money. Well, everybody that that joined our league because of Bobby's credibility and because of the fact that we gave him a million dollars, you know, we 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 got some very good owners and and we moved ahead and and we were so lucky to you know get the right cities at the time and and we moved ahead and and we were very fortunate. All right, we're going to leave it uh, right there as we uh, kind of just got heating up there with uh, the World Hockey Association. But uh, as we uh, alluded to earlier, uh, Dennis Murphy not only uh, founded uh, the American Basketball Association as well as the World Hockey Association, but went on to also found uh, World Team Tennis, uh, part owner and founder of uh, the World Football League, was also the founder of Roller Hockey International uh, and had his hand in a whole bunch of other pro uh, sports uh, exploits as well. We're going to hopefully get to some of those in uh, a couple of uh, future conversations with Dennis uh, in the uh, weeks and months ahead. So please indeed stay tuned to this here little podcast feed and uh, we will uh, look forward to sharing more conversations uh, with the uh, 93 years young Dennis Murphy on uh, future episodes. You want to find out more about Murph and uh, his history and his exploits. A couple of things. Uh, I can point you to, uh, both of which can be found at uh, Good Seats, still available. Our little website, just search up this episode with Dennis Murphy, and you'll find a link to the book uh, written in conjunction with uh, Richard Neil Graham, who uh, was uh, kind enough to kind of get the ball rolling and getting us uh, connected uh, to Dennis. And obviously, uh, uh, Richard was uh, our guest uh, in an early episode talking about the uh, roller hockey international interesting stories and, uh, and legends of that. Uh, so you can search for that on the website at goodseatstillavailable.com. But you'll also find a link at, when you find this episode with uh, with Dennis Murphy uh, to the book that uh, Rich and Dennis uh, co-authored called Murph, the Sports Entrepreneur Man and His Leagues. That came out in uh, 2013. Uh, that's just a treasure trove of all kinds of uh, uh, reminiscences and interviews and all that kind of stuff about uh, 
the great Dennis Murphy. And there's also a uh, a hard to find documentary out there. We got to sort of figure out a way to see where and when that was released and, and where it can be found. Uh, but we'll have more information for you on that uh, at our website on this episode uh, at goodseatstillavailable.com. Uh, that uh, documentary is called Game Changer, the Dennis Murphy story. Uh, that also came out in 2013 and it is a uh, production of Global Sports Productions and Screaming Eagle Productions. Uh, so those two items uh, are uh, out there and uh, we will uh, have links uh, conveniently for you to uh, to get both of those. Uh, at our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. It's also the place you can find, uh, of course, all of our social media feeds. On Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, on Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you will find a Facebook page devoted to us as well. And of course, on the website, you will find a link to uh, send us some email, but you can do that directly, of course, by sending that to hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, you will also find a link conveniently on our website, uh, to uh, subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can uh, be uh, well-informed and maybe early uh, at that as to what our uh, next episode is going to be in for the uh, coming week and uh, all kinds of other good stuff. Of course, you find all the links to all of our great uh, sponsors and stuff there too. Again, that's a good seat, still available.com. One last thanks to our friends at uh, Potfly Productions. In particular, of course, the very good doctor, the esteemed Jerry Payne, and uh, his team at Podfly Productions. Find out more about him and them at podfly.net. All right. Thank you so much for listening to this very special episode. More to come with Dennis Murphy in the coming months. And uh, we uh, look forward to sharing that and uh, lots of other great stories uh, and nooks and crannies from the world of forgotten sports here on The Great Show. Good seats still available. Thanks for listening. Take care. And until next week, uh, the ticket window is now closed. Take care. Jersey American, Jersey American, go, go, go. We're the Americans, Jersey American, and we're so.